but the single most, there is one single important issue about conversion of adults, and that is the potential invalidation of the conversion if the person did not intend to keep the mitzvot sincerely. Now, this is a big, 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 big issue because uh, there are sometimes many people who convert to Judaism. Maybe I shouldn't say many, that's that. I don't want to say Lashonara. But there are people who convert to Judaism for many different reasons. Sometimes it's to marry somebody. Sometimes it's to get Aliyah, to be able to come to Israel. And when they convert, they don't have intention that they want to keep the Torah. Now, again, let me repeat. I've said this many times, but I'll say it again. If a convert sincerely intended to keep the mitzvahs, but later became non-religious, that does not invalidate the conversion at all. Because once a person converts, they're Jewish. Now, a Jew who stops keeping the commandments is still Jewish. So a ger who stops keeping the commandments is still Jewish. Okay, it's very important that you, again, and forgive me for repeating it, but I repeat it because the newspapers, uh, the press always gets it wrong. The press in Israel routinely will say that the Rabbanut has invalidated conversions because the convert stopped being observant. That is absolutely not the case. A convert who stops being observant is the same way as any Jew who stops being observant. But, but, here is the thing. If the convert misled the basin, the convert affirmed that they were keeping, they, they plan on keeping the Torah, and they don't, then the conversion was a fraud. And, and, and yes, the conversion can be invalidated. Now, the real hard question is, how do you tell? In other words, somebody converts, and then uh, a month later, they're not religious. How do you know? How does a rabbi know that that means it was insincere to begin with? In which case, it wouldn't be a conversion? Or they just found it was too hard, so they dropped it. In which case, it would be a conversion. Meaning, we can't read a mind, right? If I'm a rabbi and a basin, I can't read your mind or a person's mind. I can only infer what their state of mind was based on their behavior. So the real question, this is a very hard question, is when does the later behavior imply that there was no sincerity to begin with? And when does it just mean there was a change of heart? That's going to be hard. Sometimes, you know, I mean, obviously time is going to be a factor. To give you, to give you two extremes, let me give you a simple case. If somebody was observant for 10 years, and then they stopped doing it. That's pretty clear that they were sincere and then they stopped. On the other hand, if somebody was converted for five minutes and they ate treif, I don't assume that they changed their mind in the last five minutes. So I would go backwards and say, oh, they didn't mean it to begin with. So those are simple cases, right? Five minutes versus 10 years. Problem is, there's a lot of points in between five minutes and 10 years. And that's where you're going to get uncertainty, which means it's uh, sometimes different rabbis will come to different conclusions. Some rabbis will invalidate a conversion, some will not invalidate a conversion. But the point I'm making is that even when their answers are different, their questions are the same questions. Meaning, the only question we have is, 
Was the candidates sincere when they said they would keep the mitzvahs? If they were sincere, they're Jewish no matter what happens later. If they were not sincere, they're not Jewish. That's the question. Now, answering that question, depending on the facts of the case, different rabbis may come to different conclusions. Now, that creates a lot of confusion. I know it's very tough for people because that means that some rabbis will say your conversion is valid and you're Jewish and everything's fine. And some rabbis will say your conversion is not valid. Now, it's not just a matter of you. It's a question of kids that you have. Because remember, I mean, this is a situation. Let's assume grandmother converted. But grandmother then lived a non-religious life. But grandmother has children. And grandmother has grandchildren. Right now, and let's assume it's all from the maternal line. So the problem is that even if grandma is not religious, but her grandchildren could be religious, but you understand what's going on here. If grandma's conversion is invalid, that means her daughter was not Jewish, and that means her granddaughter was not Jewish. Even though they've been living religiously their whole life. So you have to understand that the issue of invalidating a conversion is not only for the person who's not religious. I mean, if they're not religious, maybe they don't care. But the problem is there may be religious generations that might be affected by that, right? So I'm not giving you an answer to this question, but I think it's important that you know what the question is. The question is not, oh, you're not from anymore, so we invalidate your conversion. No, that, you can't do that. The question is, the fact that you're not observant, does that indicate you did not sincerely accept the commandments? So let me give you a very, very famous case in Israel. It goes back to the 1970s. Uh, and this involved, uh, this is called in Hebrew, ha'och v'achot, the brother and the sister. Or in English, it's called the Langer case, the famous case of brother and sister Langer. And this goes back to the 1970s, so before you were in the, on the earth. Uh, but the case involved the following. Uh, a brother and sister registered not to get married to each other. <laughs> they registered to be able to get married. Each of them wanted to get married. And the Rabbanut declared that brother, the, both the brother and the sister are not allowed to get married because halachically they were mamzers. Why were their mamzers? Because they were born from a woman who married a second time. They were born from a second marriage. And mom never got a get, a Jewish divorce, from the first marriage. And the halacha is, as you know, if a woman does not get a get from the first marriage, she's still married to her first husband. So the marriage to the second husband is adultery. And if the marriage to the second husband is adultery, a child that is born from adultery has the stigma of mamzer. They're Jewish, they are Jewish, uh, but they're not allowed to marry other uh, Jews other than a convert or another mamzer. Yeah? Um, the, like, what if like, they weren't Jewish like before, and they, they got a divorce, and then they converted. After. Yeah, that's not a problem. Oh. That, that, yeah, yeah, but I'm talking about uh, they were married uh, Jew, Jewish. Oh, okay. Now, this first marriage, Langer is, Langer is the name of the second husband, right? That, that's why the kid's last name is Langer. The first marriage was to a fellow, Abraham Barakovsky. 
don't want to overwhelm you with names. You can remember two names. Now, Abraham Borakowski was a, a, born a Polish Catholic, but he converted in the 1940s and came to Israel. It's kind of strange. Why would a Pole convert after the Holocaust? But he converted, came to Israel, and married uh, the woman who was Mrs. Langer. Eventually, the marriage broke up, and for some reason, I don't know why, they're living in Israel, for some reason, she did not get a get, and she just married Mr. Langer. So technically, Borokovsky was Jewish because he converted, and as a result, uh, brother and sister are moms. Everyone understands why this would be a momser. Remember, again, just to restate what I've said many times already, uh, a child born out of wedlock is not a momser. A momser is only born from adultery or incest. Okay, but adultery is defined, any woman who doesn't have a get from her first husband, any second marriage is adultery, even if there was a civil divorce. And Israel anyway doesn't even have civil divorces, but it wouldn't make a difference. So, first of all, the Jerusalem Post and Mariv, all of the uh, journalists, they were attacking the Rabbanut because they basically said, this is like the Middle Ages, you have blacklists, you have lists of people who are not allowed to get married. I mean, they have to, the Rebbe has to have a list of who's a moms or who's not. We need to have that information. And they said, this is medieval. And of course, uh, you had the politicians that say, oh, they speak about Torah. They say, this is not the Torah that I know. Whatever, <laughs> as if they know Torah. Uh, this is not the Judaism that I, you know, I believe in. Whatever it is. And they were attacking. And um, there was a rabbi who's actually, I don't know if you've heard of him, very interesting rabbi, not alive anymore. His name was Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, one of the most colorful and controversial uh, rabbis in Israel. Uh, he's not alive anymore. He was, for many, many years, the uh, chief rabbi of the army, the IDF. Uh, and later he became uh, chief rabbi of Tel Aviv for a short while. But he claimed, he was a, he was a brilliant person, mamish a genius, and he knew quite a lot of Torah, he knew really a lot, but he was, he was a maverick, he was very independent, and he often devised creative things. And he promised he would solve the Langer problem. He would solve the Langer problem. And by the way, that's how he got elected to be chief rabbi of Israel, Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel, because he promised he would solve this problem, and he got elected to be chief rabbi of Israel. Very controversial, a lot of... So, a few months after he made this promise, he issued a psak halacha that was like 90 pages explaining why the Langers were not monsters. And he said he had a lot of Dayanim who agreed with him, but they, 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 uh, he kept them anonymous because he, he said he didn't want them to be attacked. Okay. So this was an anonymous psak halacha other than him. He was the only rabbi who signed the decision. And his argument was the following. Listen to this argument. His argument was that the first marriage was to Borokowski. Borokowski was a gear. Borokowski was not born Jewish. Borokowski was no longer observant. He wasn't keeping Shabbos, and he wasn't keeping kosher. Therefore, Rabbi Gorin Paskins, that his conversion is invalid, and he was a guy. Now, if Borokovsky is a guy, then Mrs. Langer's marriage to Borokovsky 
was not a halachic marriage. It wasn't a valid marriage. If it wasn't a valid marriage, you didn't need a get. Right? Therefore, her marriage to Mr. Langer was a kosher marriage, and brother and sister are therefore not mamsers. Everyone follow Rabbi Gorin's reading. Rabbi Gorin's argument was, because Borokovsky was not religious, <coughs> his conversion is invalid and he's no longer Jewish, or he never was Jewish. Now, Borokovsky was very upset. Borokovsky was not, was not uh, notified of this decision. He saw it on television, and on television he reads, Rabbi Shlora Gorin uh, has freed the brother and sister from being moms there. Uh, by declaring that Abraham Borokovsky is not Jewish. So you're watching, I mean, you, imagine, you're watching on television in Israel, and on TV they announce you're not Jewish. So he was very upset. He, I mean, he, wanted, he, he was not observant, but he wanted to be Jewish. But Rabbi Gorin declared him not to be Jewish. Now, you have to know that this case caused tremendous turmoil in the rabbinic community because they basically said that Rabbi Garn was bending the rules because Borokovsky did convert in front of a kosher basin. Borokovsky initially kept commandments. He just stopped doing it later. So how can you invalidate a conversion based on what he did, what he did later? Because of this, as well as the irregular procedure of not giving the names of the judges. When, when you have a basin, you're supposed to give the names of the judges. Rabbi Garn kept them anonymous. Many, many judges in the rabbinical courts who were technically under Gorin's jurisdiction as chief rabbi, they resigned their positions in protest. Rebel Yashif, who was, died around uh, 10 years ago, he was considered to be the posek of the generation. He had been a judge for the rabbinut, and as a result of the Langer case, he resigned. He resigned his position uh, on the basin. He took early retirement, so to speak. Uh, and this was an, an enormously controversial issue. And many people felt, again, I'm not expressing my opinion on it, many people felt that Rabbi Garin was bending the rules because either he wanted a political, he wanted the position of chief rabbi and this got him that position, or maybe, maybe we can give him a, a better motive. He had genuine compassion for the brother and sister, and therefore he was looking for a way to free them. But the problem always is that uh, you know, a person has rachamim and a person has compassion, but you still have to operate within the rules of the halachic system. And keep in mind, this is a very good example, that compassion for one person turns out to hurt, be hurtful to the other person. Because what are you doing? I have compassion on this brother and sister. Therefore, I will declare that Abraham Borokovsky is a goy. I mean, you know, I mean, I have rachamim for you, and therefore I'm going to hurt you or hurt somebody else. You know, that's not necessarily the way you do it either. Yeah. Just like under that condition, how much time post his conversion did he become a So, I think it was over 10 years. But, but again, again, it's not so simple. People like to attack Rabbi Garin, but the truth is Rabbi Garin said had some evidence that even right after his conversion, he was still attending church on Sunday. What? Uh, again, is it true? Is it not true? I, I honestly don't know. But there, there was, there were different little facts that made it uh, a little strange. Um, but as I say, Rabbi Garn was a very, very colorful person, a very brilliant person, a very innovative person. 
but he was independent. He was somewhat of a loose cannon in the sense that uh, he often went against, uh, you know, the his superiors, so to speak, the, the the great leaders of the generation, to be independent in his own way. So some people absolutely love him, and some people say you gotta you gotta stay away from him. Uh, again, he's not alive anymore, but uh, as they say, he's been one of the most interesting people in the rabbinic community uh, in in Eretz Yisrael. Okay, uh, yeah. What I understand from so why did they get a get? I don't know. It really doesn't make sense because um, in Israel, the only way you can get a divorce is by a get. Meaning there is, there is no other... I mean, in any other country, you can get a divorce. In Israel, you cannot get a divorce. A divorce is get. So essentially, she married without a, without a divorce. I don't know why. Um, maybe he didn't want to give a get. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why they didn't bother to get a get. It's an important thing. Now... To give you an example, though, that Rav Garin was sometimes inconsistent, let me give you another case where he went in the opposite direction, like, out of meaning, whatever shows Rachamim, that's where he went to, even if it contradicts. There was a woman, Helen Seidman was her name, an American woman who came to America, and uh, she was born a non-Jew, and she had uh, a reform conversion, now, reform conversion, you're not accepting the commandments, right? I mean, you're, just, uh, you're, you're not agreeing to keep Shabbos or keep kosher or anything else. Uh, and she came to Israel with her husband, Israeli husband, and uh, she wanted to claim citizenship under the Israeli law of return, right? The law of return is a very important law in Israel. It's not a halakha, it's a law of the Knesset that anyone that is Jewish can automatically claim citizenship in Israel. But in those years, in order to be Jewish, you had to have, if you were a convert, it had to be a conversion according to halacha. Now they just change it, by the way. Again, many people are very upset. Um, the Supreme Court of Israel recently said, just like a few months ago, said that uh, a conservative reform conversion does qualify for citizenship under the law of return. That's a new thing. Uh, the Rebbe was tremendously against it for all, all of the years. Whenever there was any attempt to take away the requirement of a halachic conversion for citizenship, he opposed it tremendously. But at this point, uh, that is the law right now. But, but in those days, back in the 70s, the giyor had to be a halachic conversion. If it wasn't a halachic conversion, uh, you didn't have citizenship. So Helen Seidman could not become a citizen based on the reform conversion. But Rabbi Gorin gave her an orthodox conversion. She went to the mikveh and the like. Now, she was not observant, but Rabbi Gorin said, as long as she agrees to live in the land of Israel and not go to Chutz Laaretz, he felt that since living in Israel is equal to all the mitzvahs of the Torah, it's as if she's agreeing to keep the Torah. Now, you understand that that's a contradiction to what he did with Borokovsky. I mean, Borokovsky also was living in Israel. But because he was not observant, the conversion was invalidated. Here you have Helen Seidman, who is not observant, but her conversion is permitted because she's agreeing to live in Israel. These are not consistent. These two things cannot be combined together. But uh, the common denominator is that uh, in one case he has Rachamim, 
for the mamzer in mamzer, mamzeres. And in another case, he has rachamim for Helen Seidman, you know, etc. Again, I, I, I don't want to be critical because rachamim is a very important thing. It is important to have compassion. But you understand that you can't just always go with the easy way out. You can't always say, gee, I'm sorry for you, so you get it, and I'm sorry for you, and you get it. I mean, there, there has to be a consistency. There has to be adherence to the halachic rules. And you have to try to discover compassion within the halacha. So that was the issue. So if you're interested, you could look up Wikipedia, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, G-O-R-E-N, and see. And by the way, he was also very involved in, um, uh, he was there, he, he was the head of the, he was the head chaplain, the head rabbi of the army in 1967 when the uh, Temple Mount was liberated. And you actually see him blowing the chauffeur there. You know, he's very, very prominent there. He was one of the first people there. And uh, he also believed, which is another controversy maybe we'll talk to you about, about later, that Jews should go on the Temple Mount. Jews are permitted to go on the Temple Mount. And as you know, that is a very, very strong halachic controversy. My guess is you are probably told not to go on the Temple Mount, and that's what most yeshivas and seminaries teach. Uh, but there are some religious, very religious people now who hold that you're allowed to go in the Temple Mount. And Rabbi Gorin was a very, very strong advocate of Jewish people going on the Harabayat. How do they explain that like, they, they can't go there? Because it's like, they're from Torah. They... No, so here it's a, little, it's a little complicated because here, here is the thing. The problem is all of us are ritually impure because we've been in a cemetery or contact with a dead body. Now, once you're ritually impure, you can never become pure, no matter how many years have passed, until you're sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer. Which means, since we don't yet have the red heifer till Moshiach comes, all of us are impure. Right? That's step one. We're called tongue, huh? Oh, what's the red heifer? Okay, that's a long story. But essentially, uh, in the book of Bamidbor, there is a special ritual to purify people from contact with the dead. And that involves taking a cow that's totally red, really brownish red, and burning it into ashes, and then mixing it with spring water, and having a Kohen sprinkle it on you uh, on the third day after your contact with the dead, and on the seventh day. And then you go to the mikveh, and then you're pure. This is called the ritual of the red heifer, which we presently don't have. And therefore, if you have ever been in a cemetery any time in your life, you are Tame forever and ever and ever un until we have the red heifer. Now, that's step one. Step two is a person who is Tame is not allowed to go in the area of the temple. That is true. However, step three is where you have a problem. Not all of the temple mount is the area of the temple. So those who go basically say that the outer perimeter of the Temple Mount is not within the boundaries of the temple. Therefore, I can go, which means even they would say you can't go all the way in and, and the like. The other position is that since we're not sure exactly where the temple is, we have to be strict. So in principle, there's not really an argument here. In other words, everybody says the part of the Temple Mount that's not the temple grounds, you're allowed to go into. into. The part of the Temple Mount that is the Temple Grounds, you're not allowed to go into. Right? Everybody agrees to those rules. The Machlokas is, how confident are you 
regarding your identification of what's the temple area, what's not. It's very, very difficult to superimpose the Beis Amikdash on the present Temple Mount because there's been so much renovations and the like, and there are eight different configurations. Have you ever looked into this? Some put it this way, that way, that way, that way, meaning if you, if you try to put down the Beis Amikdash where it was, you have eight different ways of doing it. Uncertainty. And under some configurations, you could walk here. Under other configurations, you can't walk here. So the Dati Liumi, that's the religious Zionist community, which is more lenient in this area, they are more confident in their archaeological knowledge and they're willing to identify this is where the temple was and therefore we can go here and not here. And the more Haredi world is stricter in this. That, that's the issue. So I'm just mentioning that one of the things that Rav Garin was fairly aggressive about was he was pushing very much that Jews should go on the Temple Mount. But we have this little problem in, even in our Sameach. You know, the, um, the yeshiva officially, uh, you know, we follow the normal rules that you tell our students not to go in the Temple. Besides the fact that it's dangerous, that's another issue because it causes riots, that's another issue. But even halakhically we say they shouldn't go. But in my neighborhood, there are some people who are activists uh, for going on the Temple Mount, and they come to Orsam Hayach, and they talk to the boys, and the boys don't know. They, you know and uh, so there's a lot of confusion. So um, some people want to like, tell this guy, he's not allowed to come. Yeah, whatever, he's not allowed to come into uh, Orsam Hayach anymore. Okay, whatever. I, I, we don't like to, I, I don't like to censor somebody in that way. But sometimes people are hearing multiple conflicting voices, so it's a little difficult. But that, that's the issue of the Harabayat itself. Okay. But as I say, uh, Rav Gord was controversial regarding Mamzer issues, and he was controversial regarding conversion issues. And sometimes uh, he was contradictory in that way. Yeah. Um, so it's something that I feel like I've seen a lot um, growing up was like, um, a Jewish woman, she marries a guy that's not Jewish, and then she's not observant, but he somehow converts um, to Judaism, but like, is that also like a halachic thing? Like, if he's if she's not keeping the tefillah, he's not keeping the tefillah. He still does some sort of like. Well, well, here's the thing. I mean, obviously, uh, if a person did not intend to keep them, did not intend to keep the mitzvahs, his conversion is not a halachic conversion. Even if he goes through a mikvah, and he, even if he's in front of Orthodox rabbis. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what could happen though sometimes is that people can, what you might call upgrade. Somebody might get um, even an invalid conversion, a reform conversion or whatever it is, but they get more and more interested in Judaism. And eventually they do become more observant. Mm -hmm. And then they could do an orthodox conversion, halakhically. And even if the other spouse is not observant, meaning it is, I mean, if you ask me generally, in fact, even if people aren't converting, I mean, let's assume you have a married couple, mm -hmm. uh, two Jews, two born Jews, and they weren't religious, and one gets religious and the other one isn't. Can they stay married? Well, yes, they can stay married, uh, but they're going to be difficulties. Meaning, I can be I can be a Shomer Shabbos even if my spouse is not. Mm -hmm. I can be a Shomer Kashrut even if my spouse is not, although there'd have to be cooperation in how you run the kitchen. Nida is going to be an issue because the laws of family purity takes two to tango, meaning if I want to keep Tarat HaMishpacha and my wife doesn't, you know, so, something has to be negotiated there. So Nida is the one thing in which if I want to stay in the marriage, 
and I want to live religiously, my spouse has to give in. I don't have any room to give in if I want to be religious. But on Shabbos and Tashras, it is possible to have a modality in which I keep the halacha, my spouse does not. Um, again, it's not, it's not the best situation, especially when there are children, they're going to be confused. Uh, but it is possible. I mean, and I, I know some marriages that way, uh, where one, part, one person is very observant and the other person is not observant, but they love each other and uh, they respect each other. So it can work. It can work. Uh, oh, so, so this is tricky. A conversion for marriage can still be a conversion mm-hmm. if that conversion has a commitment to keep the commandments. Mm-hmm. In other words, even if the motivation is marriage, but if it will involve a sincere commitment to keep the mitzvahs, that'll be a good conversion. Mm-hmm. As opposed to what you might call a fake conversion, where there's no real intention, so then that's simply no good. Okay, so that's that's the important that's the important thing. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I myself I'm aware of people who converted only because they were married to a Jew, but they understood that as part of that conversion they would take on these responsibilities, and they did it, and eventually they grew Baruch Hashem, they grew to love them, and the like. By the way, uh, what often happens, well, maybe often is too strong a word, but what sometimes happens is, often is the opposite. You, you had mentioned uh, the uh, non-Jewish uh, guy who married the Jewish woman uh, who became more religious. But uh, very often what happens is this. A Jewish guy marries a non-Jewish woman, and the non-Jewish woman gets interested in Judaism. She converts, and she makes her husband observant. And often that's going to be the case because it's un- unquestionably the case that a woman is the dominant religious, you don't realize your power, uh, creates the dominant religious tone. If a woman wants to be religious, the home will be religious. If a woman does not want to be religious, the home will not be religious. Uh, the woman is much more powerful. And indeed, the Medrash says this. The Medrash says a righteous woman will make a Russia into a tzaddik. And uh, an evil woman will make a tzaddik into a rasha. Everything depends on the woman. If she cares about Yiddishkeit, then he'll come along. Uh, if she doesn't care about Yiddishkeit, then even if he cares, she will drag him away. That's, that's the nature of things. And so I know more, I mean, this is that God's sense of humor, that sometimes, you know, intermarriage is no good, but sometimes intermarriage is one of the ways that God brings a non-religious Jew back to Judaism. Meaning to say, you have a guy who's not religious. He marries a non-Jew because he doesn't care. And she is the one that brings him back to Yiddishkeit. Right? So it's the intermarriage itself that brought him back to, brought him back to Torah. Okay, so that, uh, yeah. Rabbi, can I go back up and ask a question about Moses? Yeah. Um, if there are two Jews who are not halakhically married, they live like a married couple? Okay, let, let me talk about that a little bit. It's a digression, but it's worthwhile to talk about. Uh, what makes a halachic marriage, right? So generally, husband, a man gives something to the woman, a ring, and declares, you are my wife, in front of two witnesses. What about living, uh, you know, in, under secular law, in many states, the United States, there is a concept called a common law marriage. Maybe you've heard of the term common law marriage. So what is a common law marriage? That means they live together as husband and wife, 
but they never got a marriage license and they never had a ceremony. So in some states, not in all states, the fact that they live together as husband and wife makes it a marriage even though they did not go through the requirements. So the question would be, how halachically can living together as man and woman create a halachic marriage? So let's differentiate two situations. It is a davar pashut that if they are living together just as boyfriend and girlfriend, they're not married. That's very, very clear. A person has a one-night stand or even a longer-term relationship, but it's understood they're not married. They don't introduce themselves as Mr. and Mrs. They're not married, that's for sure. And therefore, there's no mamzer if she goes off with somebody else. However, it gets a little more complicated when they really consider themselves, like people sometimes say, hey, uh, what do I need a piece of paper for a marriage license? You know, this is my wife. They consider themselves married. They'll even put down Mr. and Mrs. So the question is, does that become a halachic marriage? So that's a big, big, big machlokas, actually. Or a civil marriage, for example, where they actually are legally married. Moshe Feinstein took the position that if they didn't have a halachic marriage ceremony with kosher witnesses, then a civil marriage is nothing, and living together is nothing, and uh, representing themselves as husband and wife is nothing. So according to Rav Feinstein, none of those things are halachic marriages unless you had a ceremony in front of two kosher witnesses, that means Shomer Shabbos witnesses. So according to Rav Moshe, all of this would be zero. On the other hand, uh, there was a, a great rabbi, Rabbi Henken, who was Rav Moshe's older contemporary, who actually took the position that if they intended to live as husband and wife, not casual, they intended to be husband and wife, even if they did it in a non-halachic way, it turns into a halachic marriage. Now, you have to understand that this second view would be very, very bad news for many chosrot b'tshuva. I mean, let me explain this. According to Rev Henkin's view, and you, you know, people are very lucky that we pass him like Rav Moshe on this, According to Henkin's view, most kids who are born from second Jewish marriages, when mom had a first marriage to a Jew, would be momsers. Because most of the time, even if it was a reform marriage or a civil marriage, or whatever it is, if they needed a get to that marriage, and there was no get, then their second marriage is adultery and they're going to be momsers. The reason they're not is because of Rabbi Feinstein's rule that the first marriage was not valid. So you have to understand that Rav Moshe Feinstein saved, liberated tens of thousands of kids from second marriages from having the stigma of mamzer. Can you make sense? You see how important Rav Moshe's halachic decision here is. Yeah. What if two people are in the process of divorce and the man gives a get, and halachically, technically, they're divorced, but... Like, like, oh, okay, so let's, they didn't get a civil divorce yet? Yeah, and then one of them goes like... Okay, that's a very excellent question. Again, let me, let me repeat, this is n- never a problem in Israel because Israel has no other divorce, for Jews at least, than get. Okay? But in the United States, or any other country in the world, it certainly is an issue because a get is a religious divorce but you still have to get a divorce under the laws of the state, whatever state it is, New York, Massachusetts, 
and the like. Now, I'll tell you this. Different bastins do different things. Some bastins will not even write a get until the civil divorce goes through, which means the civil divorce will be there first. So by the time they give the get, there is no longer a civil divorce. But halakhically, that doesn't have to be the case, and not every basin follows it. So let's assume a get was given, but the civil divorce is not yet finalized. So from the standpoint of halakha, they are no longer married. So even if under the law of Massachusetts they're still married, there will be no mamzer in such a case. So the woman might not be allowed to get married, technically. She'd be committing bigamy if she marries without a civil divorce. But there would be no mamzer problem. Once she has a get, halakha permits her to... So they could both halakhically get married? Halakhically they could both get married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most rabbis will not do a marriage ceremony for them because it's against the law. Meaning it's against secular law for me to marry somebody who is not civilly divorced. That's bigamy. You know, having to, uh, right? And uh, I would be an accessory to a crime. But if you're asking me, does Jewish law allow such a marriage? The answer is 100%. Because Jewish law pays no attention to a civil divorce. It means nothing. The only thing that's important is the get. Okay? Okay. Um, All righty. So as I say, though, uh, this is category one. It's a long, long digression about conversion of adults. And the single most important issue is the sincerity of the Kabbalat mitzvos, the acceptance of the mitzvos. Now, the second issue is conversion of minors. Uh, that includes anyone from a baby, newborn baby, to a, somebody before their 13th birthday or a girl before their 12th birthday. Now, they're minors. So here, uh, you'll recall the idea that uh, the uniqueness of this type of conversion is that we can convert them they can be converted, but when they reach bar or bas mitzvah, they have the right to renounce their conversion because they did not really agree as a minor. So that's the unique feature of the conversion of minors, the right to renounce. But if they don't renounce, they don't have to reconvert. If they don't renounce, they are Jewish by virtue of the first conversion. Now here, the primary issue is... Uh, can we do a conversion of a minor if a family is not fully observant? Now, this is a big, big argument. Some say that since it's a good thing to be a Jew and we can confer benefits on people without their knowledge, so to speak, so even if the family is non-observant, we can do the conversion, unlike the conversion of an adult. Others say that uh, we can only do the conversion if the child will be raised in an observant home, and then the question becomes, how observant, what for, in other words, see, let let me give you a practical example of the difference between minor conversions and adult conversions. Let's imagine an adult comes to me, a woman or a man wants to convert, and they say to me, you know, listen, I want to keep the Torah, but it's too hard for me to keep kosher at work so I'm going to eat treif at work. I'm going to have a kosher home. I'm going to eat treif at work. Well, I sympathize with that person, but I could not do the conversion because that person is not agreeing to keep kosher. 
So I'd have to tell the person, continue to study, and you know, hopefully you'll reach a place where you'll keep kosher at work as well. Because I can't do the conversion because he hasn't accepted kashras. Now, consider this though. Let's assume this same couple adopts a baby and they want to convert the baby. And they say, we will keep Shabbos, we will keep kosher in the home, and we will send the baby to a Jewish school when he gets older. There, I would be allowed to convert the baby. Now why? What's the difference? How come if the adult says, I'm not going to keep kosher at work, I cannot convert the adult, but if the adopted parents, let's assume they are Jewish, says, we'll keep kosher at home but not at work, I could. See, because the question is a different question. When an adult wants to convert, I have to ask the question, are they accepting the commandments? And if they say they're not going to keep totally kosher, they're not accepting the commandments. With the child, the question is different. Will the child be raised in a halakhically acceptable framework? And if the home is kosher and they keep Shabbos in the home, what the parents do on their own outside the home is not relevant on the conversion of the child. You see the point? This is a subtle point. There's a difference in what we're looking at when it comes to converting the child than it is what we're looking at when it comes to converting the adult. Another example would be Taras HaMishpacha. Let's assume uh, a woman says to me she wants to convert or her husband wants to convert and they say, we'll keep Shabbos and we'll keep kosher but we cannot keep the laws of Nida. Too hard. There's no way we can halachically do that conversion. They're refusing to keep the laws of Tarat HaMishpacha. But if they adopt, let's say they're a Jewish couple, they adopt a child and they say, we will keep kosher, we will keep Shabbos, and we will go to Shul and we will send our child to an Orthodox school, but we don't keep Tarat HaMishpacha. But you see, Tarat HaMishpacha the kid doesn't know what his parents are doing. So in terms of the kid, this is a Jewish home. You see? So as a result, if you're asking me, can I convert a baby whose parents are not keeping Taras and Mishpacha? The answer is yes, or at least arguably yes. Could I convert a woman who says she's not going to keep Taras and Mishpacha? No. Okay, so the point I'm making is, in both, there is this concept of accepting the commandments. But it's a different nuance. In the case of the child, the concern is, how will the child be raised? In the case of the grown-up, the concern is, are they going to keep these commandments or not? Even something like, this is a tough one actually, let's say uh, a, a non-Jewish woman is converting, and she says she'll keep, she'll keep Shabbos, she'll keep kosher, she'll keep Tarot HaMishpacha, but she's, she refuses to cover her hair. You know, married women are supposed to cover their hair. That's a, that's a tough one. I, I, but somebody didn't, will not allow a conversion if she says she's not going to cover her hair because she's not accepting this halacha. On the other hand, when it comes to converting a child, that doesn't affect the child. The child will have Shabbos, the child will have kashras. So I, think, I don't think there's any problem with converting a child if the mother is not covering her hair, right? It's a separate, it's a separate issue. 
So the point of all of these examples is that the type of religiosity that we might require of the woman or the man if they were converting is not necessarily the same level as we would require of the parents when they're adopting a non-Jewish child uh, or, 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 or the like. Uh, but still, one thing I think we could say, if the parents are not going to keep Shabbos or kosher and they're not committing to send their child to a religious education, we will not convert the child even then because he, will not be, he or she will not be raised in a halachic environment of keeping the Torah. Right? So even for that, there are going to be limits as to how far we go. Yeah. How does that coincide with what we said about if someone converts and then doesn't uphold, then the conversion is like, it goes back. Yeah, so the, the, yeah, the difference is the difference is that uh, the conversion of an adult requires the adult's consent. And if he didn't really mean it, he really did not agree to this. Uh, the conversion of a child is based on a presumption that this is beneficial to the child. So even if he winds up not keeping, but it was still a benefit. And if the parents don't yeah. uphold what they said they would do. Yeah, uh, so, so what if they don't, uh, that, that's, that's a good question. That, that may be analogous to the adult who defrauded the basin. And in that case, the conversion might be, might be invalid and, and the like. Okay, so now the last area that I want to talk about, we didn't fully discuss. We discussed it in bits and pieces. Uh, so we discussed the conversion of an adult and we discussed the conversion of a minor. By the way, just remember, there are two scenarios where minors get converted, two different ones. One is adoption. Right? We adopt a non-Jewish child, we convert them. The other is uh, intermarriage, meaning this will also be a case where uh, a Jewish man marries a non-Jewish woman, has children who are non-Jewish, and then what will often happen is that both the wife and the kids will be converted, and that would be a halachic process. So that's a little different. One is adoption, and the other is wife and children convert together, often the same day. But the issues are still going to be the same, uh, that uh, the wife has to accept the commandments, and uh, there has to be a mutual commitment on the part of both parents to raise the children halachically. Did you want to say? Yeah. Yeah. If they do that together, is the like do the children have to let's say God forbid the parent passes away, do the children have to sit shiva or say cottage? Yeah, yeah. So let, let me talk about that a little bit. Um, this is again uh, an emotionally difficult halacha, and let me address both issues. Uh, if a child is adopted by a family, and the child is converted, either Jewish or is converted to be a Jew, uh, does this child sit shiva? if either of their adopted parents dies or say Kaddish. So strictly speaking, from the literal standpoint of the halacha, an, adoptive, an adopted child does not sit Shiva or say Kaddish for parents. In other words, they're not obligated, let me put it that way. But as a matter of gratitude and love, they are permitted to have what you might call optional Shiva and optional Kaddish, meaning actually, they should. They should say Kaddish and they should shit Shiva, but it's not an absolute obligation. Now, your question is one step further. Instead of adoption, let's assume it actually is a biological child. Let's say a Jewish man has 
a child from a non-Jewish woman. So the, the woman is a, a non-Jew and the kids are non-Jewish. And then the woman and the children convert, right? So if the, either the mother dies or the father dies, do they sit Shiva or say Kaddish? The answer is, once there is a conversion, that cuts all family ties and they are treated like adopted children. And once again, the answer would be that Shiva and Kaddish are not mandatory. They are optional, but they are recommended. They, they are definitely recommended because uh, Judaism very much believes in gratitude and appreciation. And this is a deep expression of gratitude. You understand the principle that conversion technically severs the biological relationship uh, and it becomes like an adopted one. Now, an interesting question is, what if you have a non-converted parent? In both of these scenarios, both parents wound up being Jewish by conversion or otherwise. But what if you have this? This is, this is not an uncommon situation. Non-Jewish man has children from his Jewish wife. The kids are Jewish. Now, if mom dies, for sure they sit Shiva and say Kaddish. That's their mother. And there was no conversion. What if dad dies? What, what is the halacha? And again, I, I don't mean to, I hope I'm not hurting anybody, I just, I'm just speaking the halacha here. What is the halacha if you have a Jewish mother and a non-Jewish father, and the non-Jewish father, God forbid, dies? Uh, what about Kaddish and Shiva? Now this is, in some ways, a little more problematical than the earlier cases. In the earlier cases, the parents were Jewish, converted or naturally, whatever it is. Here, we're simply raising the question, do I sit Shiva for a non-Jewish parent? Do I uh, say Kaddish for a non-Jewish parent? Now here, the halacha for sure is, it is not mandatory, that's also the case. But the question is, is it optional? Meaning, is it appropriate to say Kaddish for a non-Jewish parent? This is a big, big machlokas. Uh, some say Kaddish is only for Jews. You do other things in memory of your father. You give charity. That's a very good thing. And that's pro- appropriate. But Kaddish is a Jewish thing, and it's only for Jews. You don't say Kaddish for a non-Jewish parent. On the other end, Ravaji Yosef, great Sephardic rabbi, actually said that Kaddish elevates the soul whether it's a Jew or a non-Jew. And therefore, although it's not mandatory, it's still not mandatory, but it is appropriate for um, a Jew to say Kaddish for his, his non-Jewish father. So it is a machlokas. Um, I personally uh, follow that psak. I, I would tell someone who wanted to say Kaddish for his non-Jewish father that he could do so, but, but other rabbis will not. So you'll come across different answers in this particular uh, this particular question. Okay. Uh, I have yeah. one question. Yeah. One family converts. Uh, how, like, if, if you wanna, if you wanna say, like, where to wash them out, do, should we say, like, name of kid, Bas or Bad, or then, uh, like, name of parent or Sarah? Okay. So, so let, let's go over two cases. Uh, one is where the kids converted, and one is when they didn't convert. In other words, case one is uh, the mother is not Jewish. Uh, the kids convert um, and make a difference if the father's Jewish or not because the kids are not Jewish and they convert. So in such a situation, their technical name is Ben Avraham, son of Avraham. Uh, even if it's a girl, by the way, it's not Bas Saretz, Bas Avraham. 
Some add Bas Ben or Bas Avram Visara, but but Avram is the is the name. Uh, however, however, uh, and, and it is brought down that um, if it would be embarrassing or hurtful to their parents, they are allowed to use the name of their parents. Of course, they'd have to figure out a Hebrew name or or you know Ben Robert. You can use the English name too if you have to. And, and the like. So technically, whenever there's a conversion, uh, Ben Avraham is the correct one. But for Aliyah, the Torah, other things, we can use the family name. Now, an interesting question is, what, what is the halacha if you don't have a conversion? What if you simply have, once again, a Jewish person born from a Jewish mother whose father is not Jewish? But you have a non-Jewish father. Now here, a lot of people make a mistake. They think Ben Avraham is the right designation. But that's not true. Ben Avraham is what you use when you're for a convert. Because every convert is a descendant of Avraham. But this is not a convert. You're born a Jew. You see the difference? So Ben Avraham is not right when you're born a Jew. On the other hand, if your father's not Jewish, you can't use your non-Jewish father's name. So what do you do? So there are two opinions. One opinion is we call the person up to the Torah by his mother's name. That his mother is uh, uh, Rachel, whatever it is. Now, that can be very embarrassing because people are never called to the Torah by their mother's name. Other people say you can use the name of the mother's father, the maternal grandfather, because grandparents are like parents. So if Rachel's father was Moshe, he could be called so-and-so Ben Moshe. <laughs> yeah, uh, you got a problem, but you, keep, you, can, keep, you can keep on, keep on going up till you hit uh, a father of, the, of a, a grandmother that's Jewish and, and the like. Right, so for girls, there's less of an issue. Where it would be relevant, I'll tell you where it's relevant. When you get married, so in your kasuba, the kasuba is the marriage contract, uh, it'll, it'll call you so-and-so daughter of somebody. So we do have to put in a name. Uh, That's correct, because if you're not a convert, if you're a convert, Bat Avraham Avinu is fine. But if you're not a convert, Bat Avraham Avinu is not, is not the correct designation. So it would be your, um, your mother's father, or no, the, early, the, 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 right, the most recent Jewish maternal male that you can, you can find on the maternal line and the like. Okay. Um, it's also very important for a get. Hopefully, hopefully none of you will ever have a get. But a get is even more important. A kasuba, if you have the wrong father's name or something, the kasuba is still kosher after the fact. With a get, it's a very, very serious issue. If a get does not have the right name, you're not divorced, and there's a mamzer problem. So for gets, we have to be very, very meticulous. In fact, I'll talk, I'll talk about the get ceremony a little later, but suffice it to say, that the longest, the single uh, longest amount of time that's taken in the get is to ascertain names, because every name you use, we have to write in the get. So if you're, your Hebrew name, your English name, your nicknames, your diminutives, so a get might say something like, uh, Rachel, who is known as Rachel, who is known as Charlotte, who is known as Rach, 
you know, say, <laughs> daughter of, you know, Helen, who's known as Ellen, who's known as whatever it is. Uh, like you have to put in like, every single name that people know you by, uh, or the get might be no good. And of course, uh, that means we have to figure out, like, tell me every name that anyone has ever called you. And we have to put that in the get, both on the part of the husband, on the part of the wife, on the part of the husband's father, on the part of the wife's mother, of uh, uh, wife's uh, father, and the like. Okay, so the last issue I want to discuss, I mean, I'd finish it uh, today, is uh, issues of conversion while a woman is pregnant. This is a complicated area, and ideally, we should not convert women while they're pregnant. It's better to wait till they give birth, and then we convert minors and adults. That's a relatively straightforward procedure. Uh, conversion while pregnant it has some complications, and let me explain what they are. First of all, conversion while pregnant, it makes no difference if the father is Jewish or not Jewish. That makes no difference because the kids are going to be goyim either way. Right? So the identity of the father is not important in this issue, but the mother is not Jewish, and since the mother is not Jewish, uh, she converts, and the question is, what is the status of the kids? So, the one thing we know is the following. We do have a ruling from the Talmud, but the question is the meaning of the ruling. And I actually mentioned this, Gemara, before. And that is, when a pregnant wo woman converts, when her children are born, they don't have to go to the mikvah again. The mikvah of the mother will be valid for the fetuses. That's the one data, that's the one piece of data that we know. When mom goes to the mikvah, that is a valid mikvah for the babies, the unborn babies. Okay. But the question is this. Are they considered converted Jews? Or are they considered born Jews? You see, on one hand, they might be considered born Jews because they were born from a Jewish mother. Or they might be converted Jews because they were conceived in the body of a non-Jewish woman. So are they Jews by birth? Or are they Jews by conversion? Now, they're Jews for sure. But is it by birth? Or is it by conversion? Now, are there practical differences? Yeah, there are some practical differences. Let me give you a few differences. A girl who converts is not allowed to marry a Kohen. That's a well-known principle. A girl who converts... A Giorit cannot marry a Kohen. So here's my question. Why is that? Well, part of it is, particularly in those days, uh, people who came from idolatrous backgrounds were often promiscuous and immoral, and it was not seen fitting for the holier segment of Am Yisrael. So here I'm asking a very simple question. So, if a girl converts, she cannot marry a Kohen. 
What if a fetus converts? Can she marry a Kohen? Meaning to say, mom converted while she was pregnant. Mom gives birth to girl. Can that girl, when she grows up, marry a Kohen? Now you see, doesn't it depend on this very question? If you define them as early conversions, meaning prenatal conversions, they could not marry a Kohen. If you define them as being Jewish by birth, they could marry a Kohen. So issue number one is, if the pregnant woman, after her immersion in the mikvah, gives birth to a girl, can those girls marry Kohanim when they grow up? That depends on this question. Issue number two, about a boy. Normally, a male needs two steps for their conversion. They need mikvah, and they need a bris. Meaning, it's not just the regular bris. I mean, it's the same physical bris, but it's not just the mitzvah of bris. They're not Jewish until they have a bris. If it's a boy uh, not Jewish, right? An adopted child is not Jewish until there is both circumcision. So here's my question. Let's say a woman converts while she's pregnant and gives birth to a boy. Now, if the boy is a convert, a Jew by conversion, he doesn't have to go to the mikveh again because mom's mikveh covered him, that, that we know. But he's not going to be Jewish till he has his bris. If, on the other hand, he is not a Jew by conversion, he's a Jew by birth, then he would need a bris like every Jewish child. But a Jewish child, even before the bris, is still Jewish. What practical ramifications does that have? So number one is a definition, but number two, and this is going to be a real, real tough one, and that is, um, are you allowed to violate the Shabbos to save his life? I mean, let's say, God forbid, uh, the child, this is a tough halacha. God forbid the child has to be taken to a hospital or God forbid he might die. Under the letter of the halacha, if it's a Jewish child even before a bris, I, could, I should violate Shabbos to save his life, even before the bris. He's Jewish. If, on the other hand, it's a non-Jewish child until the bris, technically it's not always clear you could violate. You can tell a guy to do it, you can do other things, but you yourself might not be allowed to violate Shabbos. So that's an important distinction. In fact, that's a big issue with adoption as well. You want to get your kid Jewish as soon as possible so that there'll be no problem with the medical care that might be needed. If you can't tell if the child is pre or post risk, do you act on the assumption that they're post-brisk? Um, who can't tell? The parent can't tell, cannot tell? I um, mean, the parent, no. Or like, if, you're, if you're in a room and like, you're, you don't really know the child... No, no, so if you don't know, you assume that it's post-bris. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And any doubt, you always resolve uh, in favor of leniency here. Yeah. Does a con- someone who was converted in utero, do they also have the option of denouncing the So that's my third, my third difference. Exactly right. Third issue is uh, 
mom converts while she's pregnant and the babies are born, boy or girl, if I look at them as Jews by conversion, then essentially this is an early minor conversion, a conversion of a minor before they were born, in utero as you say. So that would give them the right of renunciation when they reach bar or bat mitzvah. If, on the other hand, I define them as Jews by birth rather than Jews by conversion, they would not have that right to renounce. Now, the point I'm making is that there's a real theoretical problem how you characterize fetuses where the mother undergoes a conversion and by the time the babies are born, they're born from a Jewish woman. Are they Jews by birth or are they Jews by conversion? And I gave you three practical questions, very practical questions that depend on this characterization. Number one, if it's a girl, can she marry a Kohen? Number two, if it's a boy, is he Jewish prior to the circumcision? And number three, whether it's a boy or a girl, do they have the right to renounce upon attaining the age of majority? Now these are machloksim, these are arguments, and because of all of these questions, it generally is better. It's not always possible, but it's generally better to defer the conversion of a pregnant woman until after a baby is born, and then we'll just do a minor conversion, and then we know everything. The girl cannot marry a Kohen, uh, the boy is not Jewish till the end. In other words, once it's, a, once it's a born person, then it's very simple. That obviously is a conversion process, and you have the answer to all of your questions. Right? You know that um, she cannot marry a Kohen, you know that he's not Jewish till his bris, and you know when they reach the age of 13 or 12, they have the right to renounce. <laughs> And as you understand the difficulty in converting a pregnant uh, woman in that way, yeah. Neshama wise, if they denounce the conversion, does that mean that like their neshama? And as you're asking by a regular yeah. minor, yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, some might say that it it shows that they never had a Jewish neshama, and some look at it like the Jewish neshama leaves them. It's hard for us to know Kabbalistically exactly what happens. They certainly don't have a Jewish neshama from that moment on, but the question is, does that mean they never had it? So also with these halakhic questions, like the question is, is if... It, yeah, is if what then? Like, also, just in general, does a bris or like come first? Yes, yes. So here's the interesting thing. Generally speaking, a bris comes first. But obviously, in the case of the uh, woman, the mikvah comes first. In fact, it's interesting, Ramban, you, you actually, uh, you anticipated an observation of the Ramban. The Gemara says, Beferish, the Gemara says explicitly that bris comes first. The Ramban discusses the question, what if you deviated the order, will it be valid? So Ramban brings a proof that deviation of order will be valid from a pregnant woman who converts where you've had the mikvah before the uh, circumcision. But the normal sequence is you do the bris first because mikveh is the final stage that makes you Jewish. Uh, now, generally speaking, there has to be, uh, although I mentioned the other day, 
that you can take a baby to the mikvah at a very young age. Uh, you know, the father goes in, the baby's face hits the water, he holds his breath and does the dog paddle. So uh, one should not be afraid of taking even a young, a very young baby into the mikvah. In fact, it's easier below six months than more than six months because the swimming reflex uh, gets lost after six months. And then you remember that the baby is used to the amniotic fluid. The baby uh, loves the womb. It's very, very familiar to him or her. Uh, but but the, uh, the thing is uh, that uh, you can't put the baby in the water right after the bris. There needs to be a little bit of healing time. So typically doctors advise that you need at least a week between the circumcision and the immersion. So there will be a weak difference there. Yeah. If you were to convert a baby, obviously they can renounce it before their bar bar mitzvah, are you obligated to tell them they are converted so they know they have that As a matter of fact, you are. You are, because since they have the right to renounce, you are obligated to tell them that they were converted and that they have the right to renounce. You have to tell them that as well. That's why I always tell parents, do not be too tough before your kid's bar mitzvah because you could already put down the deposit for the party and everything else, and he'll just say the day before, hey, you know, I'm going to skip the whole thing. <laughs> You're going to lose your money that way. Um, as I say, it's very rare. Baruch Hashem, it's very, very rare. Even if kids are angry at their parents, they usually do not renounce their Judaism. That's a pretty extreme step. Okay, All right, so this is an issue of, of the pregnancy and the like. Now, there's another implication, though, that's very, very interesting. This is a little technical, uh, and that is uh, when a woman converts in utero, there is no longer a paternal relationship to the father, and there will only be a maternal relationship based on birth. So let, let me give you an example of what that means. Let's assume you had a Jewish man, a Jewish man, who had relations with a non-Jewish woman. And let's assume that she's pregnant with twins. She converts in utero and the kids are born. Now, this is very fascinating. The twins do share both the same father and the same mother. But halachically, they are only siblings from the mother and they are not siblings from the father because the father's connection came upon conception, right? See, that's the difference. The, the male connection to a child is generated by conception. The female connection to the child is generated by birth. Since the conception is a pre-conversion event, the conversion severs the father's connection, it does not sever the mother's connection because the birth is a post-conversion event. Now, that actually means that these twins, although they are connected, although they, have, they share both a father and a mother, are only deemed maternal half-siblings and not paternal siblings. Now, you may ask me again, what's the difference? Well, I'll give you a difference. Uh, again, some of these may be rare cases, but I'll give you a, a tangible difference. The mitzvah of yibum, 
This is an important mitzvah even today. Let me remind you what Yibam is. Yibam is leverit marriage. What is the halacha? It's in, it's in the book of Devarim. A man dies without children, without living children. So there's a mitzvah on his brother to marry the widow in an attempt to perpetuate the memory of the dead brother by having children who will continue the soul of the dead brother. This is called the mitzvah of Yibam. The Torah then says, if he does not want to do this, either he's married or just doesn't want to do it, there is a ceremony called chalitza. Now what is the ceremony of chalitza? She takes off his shoe, she spits, now it says she spits in his face, but it means she spits in front of him, she doesn't spit in his face. She spits in front of him, and she declares, so shall be done to the man who does not want to rebuild his brother's home. These words are said in Hebrew. Okay, so Yibam is the marriage. Chalitza is the release from the marriage. Now, we'll talk more about this later. It's a very, very interesting ceremony. Ashkenazim have a funny thing. Ashkenazim do not allow the practice of Yibam today. Meaning to say, if a woman is in such a situation, they only do chalitza. They do not. You're not even allowed to do yibam today. Strange. Re- I mean, it's a strange thing because the Torah clearly says yibam is better. I mean, clearly in the Torah, chalitza is the second best. If you don't want to do yibam, you do chalitza. It's considered to be a second choice, not a first choice. And yet, among Ashkenazic practice today. Not only is it the first choice, it's actually the only choice. Svardim do not accept this stringency, and Svardim do allow Yibam even today. So that's an interesting difference in Ashkenazim and Svardim. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is Yibam is only a brother that shares the same father. Meaning, if my mother married twice and I'm born from the first marriage my mother had and I have a brother who's born from my mother's second marriage so we are brothers from the same mother who do not share the same father assuming these are the only two brothers there's no Yibam at all. Yibam requires a paternal connection not just a maternal connection. That, that's the halacha. So now, again, these cases are complicated, but now let's go back to the conversion. So if a, if a pregnant woman converted and that severed the paternal bond of the father to these two, these two are only regarded as maternal brothers. They are not regarded as paternal brothers. So if these are the only two kids born, there's no, right? Then what happens basically is, if one of them dies without kids, there will be no mitzvah of Yibam on the other brother because that other brother is only a maternal brother. Although biologically it's paternal, but halachically it's only a maternal brother, not a paternal brother. And therefore there's no, uh, there's no Yibam. 
Right? So that's a, that's a big difference, a practical difference in terms of Yibam. Now, let me take this even further. Let's forget about twins for a moment. Let's just take this particular case. Let's imagine a Jewish man impregnates a non-Jewish woman and she's carrying a boy. <clears throat> then she converts and marries this Jewish man. And they have later children. Now, the relationship of the later child to the earlier child is a full brother. And yet, halachically, they're only considered to be half-siblings because they don't share the same father because the first brother actually has no father, halachically. So there would not even be even between those two brothers and, and, and the like. You see? So uh, that's uh, the idea of the difference between uh, children who were conceived after conversion versus the children that were conceived before the conversion. Okay, so that's... Uh, oh, okay, uh, one final issue I want to talk about by pregnancy of... of, um, of I mean, I'm sorry, a conversion of embryos. And that is, the one thing we, we know for sure is the mother going to the mikvah will be valid for the, embryo, for the embryos. They don't have to go to the mikvah again. That we know for sure. Final question. Is that only if the mother was going for conversion purposes? I mean, let me give you an example. What if the mother is not going for conversion purposes? For example, what if the pregnant woman is not converting, she just wants to convert the embryos? Can you do that? So that's the question. Meaning, can the embryos undergo a conversion without the mother undergoing a conversion? Or another example is something we talked about earlier. Let's assume that the mother is a Jewish woman is carrying embryos that came from an egg donation of a non-Jewish woman. Now, when she's going to the mikveh every month, she's not going for conversion. She's going for nida. So the question is, you see the question, the question is, the statement in the Talmud that mom's immersion is a good conversion immersion for the kids, is that true only if it's a conversion immersion or even if it's a regular nida immersion? Okay? Well, as I always say, whenever you have a multiple choice in halacha test, and one of the choices is machlokas. Always check machlokas, and you will have the right answer. Uh, and as I say, the, all of these are areas of machlokas, uh, and this is yet another reason why we don't like to convert uh, women in pregnancy, because there are many, many different subtleties and questions that arise. Yeah. What if the woman doesn't know when her child was, was conceived? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's also going to be a difficult question. I would have to say, if the woman doesn't know when the child was conceived, which means maybe it was conceived before her conversion and maybe afterwards. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so, so if, it was, if it was conceived after the conversion, the kid is Jewish by birth for sure. Mm. Uh, so you would treat this like a, a suffix, meaning to say, um, we don't know if the children are converts or born Jews. So we'd have what we just wouldn't know and we'd have to err on the side of stringency 
in both in both sides. Okay. Uh, any final questions? Yeah. So, since it's a microphone guest, yeah. to be safe, so there's a woman, she's pregnant, she converts. Yeah. Just to be safe, the child should also go through the conversion process. Well, you know, I'm not sure what. I'm not sure what, what that would mean. Mean, mean, meaning the child already has gone through a lot of the conversion process, the mikvah, because the mikvah counts, right? Uh, but yeah, the, we, should, we should be sure that the child, is circ- the boy will be circumcised for, uh, for conversion, yeah. We should not consider him fully Jewish till he completes the conversion process. Okay, but there's no opinion that holds that the child would again have to go through. No, that's for sure, that's for sure. The only opinion, the only time that would arise is if the woman went to the mikveh for non-conversion purposes. Okay. That would be the question. If she yeah. went for conversion purposes, for sure that'll cover the embryos. Or would it um, apply if it was like a, the question of the type of conversion that was under... Well, well um, yeah, that, that would be true. In other words, the assumption is the conversion, the, the, the immersion was kosher in front of a proper basin. Yeah, yeah, that, that, would, be, that would be the case, yeah. Okay, any, uh, any final questions? Yes. Okay, so I think uh, we kind of covered the conversion. Um, the next topic I want to talk a little bit about is, is about get and the, the problem of aguna. Aguna is a, an Aramaic word that means a stranded or anchored woman. Uh, that's a woman who, whose husband refuses to give her a get, even though they have a civil divorce. Halakhically, she is disabled from getting married. This creates many, many hardships. So I want to discuss things like prenuptial agreements and uh, the types of things that might help a woman have an easier time of it. Okay? Have a good uh, day. Uh,